Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Sessions, our uh, podcast here at Embark. I am just so privileged and uh, super excited. I've known we're going to do this interview for a while, and I've uh, been doing some research and just catching up. And I'm just, uh, like I said, ecstatic to have uh, Dr. George Slavich with us uh, today to spend some time with us and to share in his story. Uh, Dr. Slavich is a certainly renowned professor at UCLA for psychiatry and biobehavioral science. We're going to get him to talk about him being the found, founding director of the Stress uh, Assessment and Research Lab also at UCLA. But um, before all that, um, Dr. Slavich, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Rob, thank you so much. And uh, I'm a huge fan of what Embark is doing. And uh, I think, you know, in this time and age, we we need the world needs all the all the help that it can get to uh, to manage mental health and stay resilient. So it's uh, it's just a real pleasure to be able to uh, talk to you about that today. Well, great. Well, as excited as I am to talk about stress and all of your work, I I did want to say that uh, as a side note, uh, being a little bit uh, you know certainly given my age. I was looking through some of your publications and one that stood out to me, I smiled and it said 50 years of giving psychology away an interview with Philip Zimbardo. And uh, <laughs> even though it's written back in 2009, I just, I wanted to ask you like, oh my gosh, what what was that like? So the backstory is that I, I was lucky enough to do my undergraduate uh, at Stanford. Um, I'm a Bay Area kid, born and raised, so you know I traveled a whole 25 minutes away to college. <laughs> it wasn't that far. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, you know, at that time, that was late, uh, early 2000s, late 1990s, and uh, and Phil Zimbardo was uh, one of the biggest guys on campus. I mean, his uh, introductory to psychology class would you know fill up in in seven seconds after it was uh, made available on time. Uh, you know, on, on the uh, course registrar's uh, website. Yeah. Zimbardo's an amazing guy. I mean, he studied shyness and and uh, and uh, mind control and uh, obedience to authority. And you know, he's really his his work is much broader than just the uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. But uh, long story short, you know, I I, I uh, took several courses from him. Ended up being a teaching assistant. From him, and uh, and I think you know the most indelible impact that he's had on my own work in life is that um, is that you know transfer of content to students is really important, but it's not going to be as important as making other people really excited about learning and about research, uh, because if you can make them excited about learning and research, that's something that they can take with them and go off and make a career of their own, whether or not it's in the same thing that you study or not. And, you know, I still fondly remember him saying, you know, the most important thing for us to do as teaching assistants is to get students engaged, passionate, and excited. Uh, You know, it reminds me of sort of the the NC2A uh, (laughs) advertisements. You know, it's like most of us will, you know, uh, you know, turn professional in something other than sports. I think that was, that's, you know, Phil's approach to teaching. It's like most Stanford students will go pro in something other than psychology, right? <laughs> and so the best thing that you can right. do for a student is really to instill in them, you know, a thirst for learning, passion, excitement. Uh, and that has just really stuck with me. Well, what, what it, it struck me. I don't know if other people have just, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I opened it up and I 
I I had no idea that that said that actually uh, him and uh, Stanley Milgram were actually classmates in high school. There are so many wild stories. I mean, him and Stanley oh. Milgram were were classmates, you know, in the Bronx together. Uh, Zimbardo moved almost 40 times before he graduated from high school because he grew oh. up in poverty with no TV in his house, living above a, a, a laundromat, uh, you know, almost died from double pneumonia at age oh. six, the days before penicillin. Uh, so, you know, his his own personal story is really is really one of strength and resilience and and yeah. i think um and as you said at the at the top uh just you know giving his work away yeah well it sounds like that profoundly affected you uh, in such an amazing way but if i can ask i know this to many of our listeners they'll be certainly psychologists and therapists themselves um looking for a deeper understanding is why i love to do this so thank you for sharing your story, but in a similar way, if you don't mind sharing us, you know, you mentioned being from, from the Bay Area. What was your early life like, and how did that shape your goals of psychology, teaching? If you don't mind sharing with us, it'd be fascinating. Yeah, and uh, some of, not, not to compare myself to uh, Zimbardo, but I, as I've learned over the years, there's some some similar elements around shyness, and, and well, too, oh. that I'll try to talk about. But no, I mean, I, I grew up in his only child. Uh, my, my parents immigrated from Croatia. Uh, and uh, I was, let's say, painfully shy uh, growing up. Um, I remember uh, not, not feeling confident enough to ask to be able to go to the bathroom in preschool. Uh, right. I just couldn't uh, get the courage uh, to approach people. I um, I just couldn't sort of tolerate the anxiety. It was it was really pretty bad, and uh, I I suppose I funneled uh, my efforts into things that I could control and that were sort of predictable. Um, so you know, work and school are are good places to focus your efforts if you're if you're a shy kid because uh, you can sort of put your head down, you know, <laughs> close the close the door, put your head down, and uh, and just. Uh, you know, work on whatever it is that you feel passionate about. Mm. Um, and and I still remember in college having, you know, studying for tests and just having so much uh, anxiety that, you know, it felt like I was almost causing ulcers for myself. And, you know, it was, re it was never debilitating, not like that, but I, but I certainly felt uh, that uh, it was something that I didn't, you know, it was not pleasurable, let's say. Uh, and then, you know, at some point, the the pain just becomes too much, and you and I should speak for myself. Decided to try to do something about it, and you know, go a little bit easier on myself, and take mm -hmm. some chances. And you know, the funny thing about being shy, which Zimbardo also talks about in his nineteen seventy six book about shyness, is that you know, shy people essentially are prisoners of their own minds. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of links between the shyness work and, and the Stanford prison experiment work. But essentially, if you're a shy kid, you you don't lean into the world. You have thoughts that other people don't like you or won't accept you or that you'll make a fool about your, of yourself, that you'll say something stupid. And those thoughts prevent you from testing those hypotheses. Uh, you don't engage in you don't engage in social relationships. You don't uh, go and approach people at parties. And other shy people probably will resonate with me when I say this: is that you never put those beliefs to the test, right? You never you never approach somebody and then have the experience that it went well. 
And therefore, if you don't have the experience that it went well, you never have the opportunity to revise the belief that it wouldn't have gone well. Uh, and so, yeah, long story short, I grew up as a shy kid and didn't didn't quite shake that uh, in, until college and, uh, you know, have just been trying to lean into social relationships uh, ever since. <laughs> wow, I, I, I appreciate this so much. And I, I can't help but ask, certainly with your acumen and all your research and your personal experience, what, what would you say for those couching it as shyness? What is the ultimate fear? Because you're like, boy, that, that just being afraid that they're not going to like you. If we unpack that, what, what is the fear underneath? Oh my gosh. I, I mean, at a very fundamental level, you know, fear for me assumes some amount of um, um, cognition about the thoughts. I mean, you know, for me in the beginning, it's really about temperament. You know, I mean, I was too young to sort of think about obviously what fear meant or, you know, you just feel inhibited, you know, and, mm -hmm. I, and I'm talking about like when I was, I don't know, three, four and five, you know, yeah. you, you just, you feel like you are not socially safe. Uh, you don't feel like you can approach. You don't feel like you have necessarily a voice. Uh, you don't really know how to use your voice because you haven't had the opportunity to practice it quite enough. So, you know, when you get older, it sort of for me, became explicit thoughts like other people won't, you know, other people won't, uh, you know, like you, other people will laugh at you, those kinds of things. But I think early on, it's not so explicit, you know, early on, mm -hmm. it's just really feeling inhibited. And I just, we, we could expound forever. I don't mean to yeah, get caught in this. Yeah, we just... on shyness. For me, it's fascinating, you know, to think about how, you're, how it can change your life, life course, right? For sure. And I, as you know, just my in my own field of, you know, my career, it's been one of a, attachment focus. So I immediately I'm thinking, wow, I wonder how this insecurity is. The, how does that relate to some attachment? Is there a connection? And is how does shame play a factor? You know what I'm saying? I, my mind is really going along the continuum. All of those things. I mean, you know, for me, I felt very securely attached to my parents. Uh, I don't think it came from there, although um, although my mom is more, let's say, um, uh, introverted than my dad is. My dad is very outwardly outward and gregarious. My dad is a little mm. more introverted. But, you know, when you're three years old, you haven't done a ton of social learning yet. <laughs> a lot of it's also just genetic predisposition. And I suppose mm. that's what that's what mine was. Uh, but, you know, us us shy people have superheroes. And so, you know, I think. What I've tried to do in my career is 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 superpowers, I should say. And you know, I think my I suppose my career and my scholarly work is just about finding how that social sensitivity can be, you know, flipped into a strength instead of a weakness. And so I think some of that is represented in my work and certainly the type the types of things that I study. And, you know, as the the joke saying goes, you know, research is me search. And I and I think there's a little bit of little bit of truth in that if you look at the things that I focus on. Yeah, I, I noticed one of the, uh, well, more than one, but it, one that I noticed was really talking about, you know, the, the social impact of stress and health and how, how that impacts. And so, so you must be a living example of a case study, if you will, of, you know, being more social and interpersonal healthiness is really connected. Yeah, you know, the social, and I can't claim to have experienced that much you know, true adversity in my life. I, I, I'm very lucky in that sense. But 
you know, overcoming, as, as Zimbardo would say, sort of a, being a prison of our own mind, yeah. you know, is in and of itself a challenge that I think resonates with a lot of well. folks. So thank you so much. And I'm curious. So you're, you grow up in the Bay Area. Maybe the shyness is related, but you certainly must have been performing academically, had a focus in order to say, hey, I'm, I'm going a couple minutes down the road to Stanford. That, that in itself is a pretty good accomplishment. Yeah. And my life, I think, and a lot of our lives, whether we recognize it or not, is, is you know, some combination of uh, being hardworking and being prepared, you know, that, that uh, again, a saying, you know, chance favors the prepared mind or the prepared person. Um, and, uh, you know, again, just to uh, talk about my own personal experience, I wasn't a great student <laughs> in elementary school and in uh, and in, in middle school, I'm, I'm young for my class age. My, my birthday is in September. So oh. I'm in, at least in California, I'm right on the cusp of whether you sort of start early or wait a year. And that probably also has something to do with, you know, whether or not the shyness was compounded over time. Mm -hmm. But uh, but long story short, I joined a swim team in high school. I uh, it was a really small swim team. We had six swimmers only. And one of those people on the swim team uh, was just an incredible role model. And he happened to be a senior um, and was preparing. And then during the swim season, found out that he was going to Stanford. And I was really curious to learn more about what that looks like. And he just seemed like he had his life so well put together. And, uh, you know, also sort of preparing yourself for something in the future felt very controllable and sort of predictable to me. And he just had a huge influence on my mind, you know, on my own approach and really sort of taught me what it what it would take, you know, to have a chance uh, mm -hmm. to get in, you know, to a school like that. And, and just obviously on a swim team, you have a lot of time to ask people questions, <laughs> you know, uh, you're going through the season together, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know. That's that's what I mean about the serendipitous part is that, mm. you know, I, I easily could have focused on something else uh, if it wouldn't just off chance had been that I met him. And, uh, you know, he really taught me a lot about what it meant to sort of prepare yourself in a scholarly way. Uh, you know, fast forward to Stanford and uh, I grew up uh, in a business family. Uh, my my parents were uh, uh owned and operated a hardware store when I was growing up. So since age three or four, I was, sounds ridiculous, but mixing paint, cutting glass, threading <laughs> pipe, all the things you do in a hardware store, it was honestly wow. the best sort of socialization and fun that, you know, a kid could have. Uh, and when I got to Stanford, I really thought I was going to, I was going to be a business major. Uh, hmm. Well, again, sort of as chance intervened, Stanford didn't have a business major. Uh, they had and they have an economics major, and so I took you know introductory to economics and absolutely hated it. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't about yeah. the graph. The, the graphs wasn't what got me excited. It turns out that wasn't the part of business that I really enjoyed. Um, it was really sort of the psychology of business and people, and um, I suppose marketing at that time point. In any case, I. I had a great friend in my dorm who was taking a, a introductory to psychology course at the time. And I said, what the heck? I don't know anything about psychology. I never had psychology in high school. What I do know is that it's economics is not where it's at for me. 
Stanford doesn't have a business undergrad, so it's not going to be business. So I'll try something different. Mm. I took introductory to psychology and I had the experience that I didn't want to read anything from my econ textbooks. And when I opened up my psychology textbooks, I couldn't stop reading. Wow. And, you know, the, the biggest joy in life, I think, is to just find something that you love so much that it doesn't feel like work. And that's what it was for me. So, again, it's I would not have ever, you know, gotten to Stanford if I wasn't prepared. But if you want to put the pieces together, I could never say that I ended up with this particular career because I was somehow preparing myself for a career in psychology or clinical psychology. All of that is totally attributable to these chance events of, you know, Stanford not having a major, me meeting somebody else in my dorm who introduced me to something that I just happened to fall in love with and doing well in it. And I suppose also that topic being a particularly good match for my uh, DNA helps. <laughs> it's so fascinating. So <laughs> very advantageous how things worked out. You use the term serendipitous. That's it's so wonderful. So you're in you're you're in college and you start focusing it. I assume at some point in time you make it your major and you really ha harness that. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear. You know, you're getting towards the latter part of college. What's the plan for you? So that, just to put this sort of on a chronological timeline, uh, that was, I was an undergrad from 1996 to 2000, and I did a master's at Stanford in, in 2001. So I was there from 1996 to 2001. And, you know, incredible, incredible time to be at Stanford. Mm -hmm. So the 1996 on the earlier side of things was Yahoo, Netscape, you know, really the first moments of the internet coming to life in the Bay Area, but also I think worldwide, you know, really? graphic web browsers, AOL, those things. Around 1997, 1998 was the beginning of Google. And, uh, you know, the Google founders, uh, mm -hmm. the first search engine some of your listeners might know was. Uh, you know, uh, google.stanford.edu. They were yeah. graduate students at Stanford, right? So the whole page rank system and figuring out uh, the DNA that ultimately became Google was all done at Stanford. And uh, and it was, you know, you would be sitting at a lunch or a dinner table and hearing people talk about the dot-com industry and them selling their company to Yahoo for $30 million yeah. and these just these crazy stories. And I really didn't know. I suppose it was just the 50-50 chance being from the Bay Area. Do I sort of go and try to get a job at Google or Yahoo or one of these companies just down the road? Or do I do an honors thesis and, you know, try to take my stab at putting, you know, putting an independent research project together? Uh, I suppose your listeners can be the judges of whether I chose wisely or not. I, I say yes emphatically. You chose right. Yes. So, you know, it was probably 51% do the honors thesis and go to graduate school and make a career out of that versus 49% sort of take my interest in psychology and apply it, you know, to tech, health tech in some way. And the 51% uh, won out. So I did my honors thesis. Uh, graduated with honors, and then at the time happened to be doing a 
honors thesis with, with a wonderful, wonderful uh, professor at Stanford, Ian Gottlieb, who was collaborating with an amazing mm -hmm. gentleman at the University of Oregon, Scott Monroe, uh, at the time. And so then the transition to the University of Oregon and becoming an Oregon duck uh, mm -hmm. was uh, sort of an easy decision for me since, uh, since my, my soon-to-be advisor at Oregon was already a known quantity to me. And also being, I suppose, a only child wanting to stay a little bit closer to my parents, the West Coast uh, uh, felt very attractive. Yeah. Uh, can I ask, just because I have it, what, what was the di dissertation uh, title? Yeah. Uh, Cognitive Mechanisms of Stress Sensitization, uh, which feels a little bit like a mind, mouthful. Um, I'm glad I could remember it. So thanks for the mem memory check <laughs> on that one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. But the but the but the basic idea there is we know that if uh, you know each individual person if they come to experience a major life stressor like a divorce or getting fired, um, there are different thresholds that will put each of us over the edge and lead that stressor to turn into a depressive episode or mm -hmm. anxiety episode. And I was really curious, you know what what is it that sort of lowers the threshold for somebody to become depressed, you know, once they're faced with a major life event? Um, and that dissertation really, work really focused on uh, something that the cognitive behavior therapists in the audience will know a lot about, which is, uh, you know, negative thoughts, neg you know, dysfunctional thoughts and attitudes, uh, negative core beliefs, and how it is that our, our thoughts and our perceptions of ourselves other people and the future uh, can really, you know, make certain individuals to become more vulnerable to, in in the the parlance of the dissertation, sort of sensitize us to stressors when they occur. That then allows a major life event to uh, uh, to turn into a depressive episode for one person, whereas it might not for another. So fascinating, and I mean, obviously, I don't want to jump ahead, but boy, the, the studying stress has been. A, a continual, even though there's a plethora of, I mean, you've expanded your scope of research. It, it's tremendous. It's just, I know that this concept of stress has been a variable throughout your work. Yeah. And that was, that felt like a harder thing to sell before the pandemic, especially <laughs> in the United States, because a lot of Americans, let's be honest, wear stress as a badge of honor. So, you know, in 2000, we'd all say, oh, well, stress is not a problem. You know, I mean, yeah, we're all stressed out, sure, but we're also functioning well. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, Rob, you know, the pandemic has changed all of that. <laughs> you know, we've all been through the washing machine and, uh, you know, priorities have also shifted. And I think one, one thing that the world has come to realize is that, you know, feeling stressed out is no longer a badge of honor. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not always, certainly not always advantageous to be stressed out. I mean, there is positive stress. Uh, but what I mean to say is that I think we've all come to realize the collateral damage on our mental health and our physical health from, from being stressed. Uh, and I'm also, I think, happy to say that we've all had a little bit of an awakening in terms of work-life balance to say, yeah, I'm willing to be stressed out, but only so much, you mm -hmm. know, or only willing to take that so far you know i my mental health is also important to me so i hope in this country we've had a little bit of an evolution in terms of 
our relationship to stress and how stressed we're willing to be before we say, you know, enough is enough. Well, you you bring up such a fascinating uh, point because I know, especially myself as a psychotherapist and all the people listening as as therapists, I think it's been hard for we get parents and adolescents, even the parent construct. There's no there's this awareness issue of like I'm not even sure when it's helpful stress or overstress or I'm I've just been I'm the frog in the boiling water right like I just we just and so maybe speak to like how do we how do we as therapists can even give them a barometer of what's healthy what's not how do how do you know when you're overstressed Does oh that make gosh sense? yeah it makes sense and it's it's you know that's that feels to me like a like a one week intensive workshop yeah, to get through all of that. May I think about these things in overly simplified terms, but, you know, is stress working for our patients or is it not, right? Is our, our, the families that, the families that we work with, um, you know, maybe some of them may be high octane, high functioning, uh, you know, parents, families, right? The dad or the mom is traveling all the time. They're coming back, they're, you know, throwing the stuff on the table, eating dinner, scarfing dinner, you know, they get you know, an hour or two of, you know, time with the kids before the kids go down and then they, you know, sit down for an enjoyable evening, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Re yeah. Reading the news, watching a Netflix show, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I think some families uh, thrive on that. And if you really get to the bottom of it, um, they feel like they have meaning in their life. They feel joyful. Um, they feel they really and truly feel well connected to their children uh, and to each other as spouses. And, you know, it just it feels right. And they would uh, say that it is right. Uh, you know, other families <laughs> uh, may say that everything is going well. And then you scratch the surface a little bit and you realize quite quickly that what they mean is that their work life is going well or whatever it is, but that they don't feel connected to their kids. Uh, their kids don't feel connected to them. If you ask them what their kids have been up to, they wouldn't be able to tell you really. Uh, you, do they feel connected to their spouse? Do they feel like they really have meaning and passion and joy in life? Do they feel like they're, you know, living their dharma, their, their you know, purpose in life? Uh, it's so, you know, the first answer is yes, everything is honky dory. But once you sort of open the hood, you realize that everything is going awry and that, you know, they're not really functioning as well as they, you know, maybe initially let on that they were. Um, but also that there's no there's no joy, meaning, passion, connection. Um, and so. Obviously, I think that's where as therapists, psychotherapists, myself being included, can help people reconnect with, you know, meaning and joy and, uh, and, and what it is that uh, it, they feel like they, they want in their lives. Well, I really appreciate your uh, giving us this, tying it into one of the litmus tests is this interpersonal relationship and how we're doing with, you know, being connected to our kids and how we're doing that is a really good barometer if I'm hearing you right. What a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, the COVID pandemic has been the best demonstration of the importance of social connection and belonging that we ever could have imagined. Because as we all know, one of the main things the pandemic did is 
cause complete upheaval of our social and relational lives, right? We were yeah. in, we showed up to work every day. We had regular routines, regular roles in our job situations, uh, as did kids, you know, who also showed up to school and had relationships with their teachers and with their peers. And the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, blew all of that up in a matter of months. And I think we're still quite honestly reconstituting our social lives. You know, we're just starting to return back to our work environments for some people. And the kids are now back in school, but they have a lot of catch up to do with friends and also with schoolwork. And I think we're still now in that transition period where we're trying to put our social lives back together and really feel grounded. I don't, I'm not, well, I should speak again for myself. I don't personally feel there, but I feel like we we're, we're getting there again. Yeah. I appreciate that. Especially, I mean, from our business, we, I mean, partial hospitalization and the intensive outpatient and these resources, yeah, were have been super necessary, certainly during and after the COVID it's been fascinating because for lots of kids, returning to schools, it's taken on new meaning. It's been tough. It's been hard to go from COVID to back to life as normal, and they need some supports, which has been really fascinating for us. Yeah, and there is such a rich literature showing that you know interpersonal, major interpersonal stressors are some of the strongest precipitants of almost every major mental health outcome you mm -hmm. can think of, including anxiety disorders, depression, uh, psychotic breaks, schizophrenia, you know, many of first onset uh, psychosis events and, and even schizophrenia are precipitated by major life events involving uh, high degrees of interpersonal stress. So, um, you know, and that's when people end up in partial hospitalization programs, as you, as you well know, and, and hopefully seek out therapy. So there's a lot there for us to understand. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. I just just to go back, because I, I I I'd love to ask, and then so you can you go from Oregon to uh, McLean and working at the Harvard Medical Center. Just so fascinated about that experience. <laughs> yeah, you know that my my big trip to the East Coast, uh, you know, was yeah. for a clinical internship. Uh, and McLean is fantastic place. One of the best years of my entire life was was working at McLean Hospital. Um, if you haven't, uh, if, if, if your listeners aren't, aren't aware of McLean, it's a fa fascinating read. Girl Interrupted is, is all about, mm -hmm. you know, patient's history at, at McLean Hospital. It's one of the uh, top two or three oldest psychiatric hospitals in the country and has a rich history of seeing uh, some of the most amazing, uh, creative, artistic people uh, that have ever lived. The people at McLean who are incredible have some of the deepest understanding of the nature of the human mind, both what it means to um, function well mentally and psychosocially, and also how people transition from feeling mentally well to, um, to where sort of pathology, psychopathology develops, and then mm. also to bring sort of the mind back from uh, the state of being psychopathological to being well again. Um, and, you know, I think the richest understanding of certain that line between abnormal, normal and abnormal thinking, you know, I learned an incredible amount working with the clinicians um, and the healthcare providers there. So it's um, was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and uh, 
uh, yeah, I'll be forever grateful for that. And I think for all therapists, you know, the things that we all hope for is to learn from from people always who are much, much better than us, you know, sort of the, yeah. the, the experts at understanding the mind. And so um, for me, that was a really incredible experience. So I would imagine as you're finishing up at at your internship at McLean, how is that developing? And boy, what is like, what am I going to focus on? How How is that shaping? Like, okay, here's what my next step is. I, that was 2006. I, uh, my last year of my, my internship. And, you know, at that point, fMRI was really only on the scene for, I don't know, six or seven years or so. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of psychology, clinical psychology was still very behavioral. Um, I mean, I'll use an example from my own work. Like we were doing interviews, stress like stress interviews with depressed patients and, and trying to understand how it was that different life stressors were impacting risk for depression. So, you know, if you're thinking about that in terms of like a mechanistic model, an A to Z kind of story, A is the stressors and Z is the depressive episode. But in between the depre- in between the stressors and the depressive episode are all of the other letters of the alphabet. <laughs> and, you know, all of those other letters, in my mind, psychology wasn't doing a great job at grappling with primarily because we didn't yet have the tools. Uh, we were just starting to understand the u- how fMRI could be used to image um, changes in the brain that occur while individuals were depressed uh, or when they experienced a particular type of stressor. So, you know, we were still in the early days of understanding what the neural mechanisms of, of the impact of stress on depression uh, were. Uh, we were still in the early days of, for example, um, taking blood samples from individuals who were depressed versus non-depressed. I mean, there were some people who were doing this work very well, but that really was not adding in the biological piece was really not where psychology was, you know, in, in 2000, 2005, 2006. So uh, really, in terms of my own training, what I realized was that if I didn't know anything about biology, then I wasn't going to have a career. Uh, because I thought I had figured we knew at that time kind of as enough as we needed to know that stress was important and that it increased people's risk for depression, but we didn't really know why or how. I looked to see who could teach me something about psychobiology that I thought would be useful for my work. And I found an incredible person who is since retired, but who was at UCSF in San Francisco at the time, Margaret Kemeny, who was a uh, uh, clinical psychology by, by training, but who had retrained in immunology. And I learned about her work and really what she was doing was trying in her own way to grapple with how stress was impacting the immune system. And then I learned a little bit more of that. And then I, I learned that the immune system is was presumed to be involved in depression. So, and then that for me was voila. So here I know that the immune system is connected to stress. The immune system is connected to depression in some ways. We didn't really fully understand that, but I said that's who I need to. That's who I need to work with. So I, I came back to the best coast. I <laughs> lived in San Francisco for two years. Uh, worked with Margaret Kemeny and the other incredible people at UCSF, Nancy Adler and Alyssa Apple and a whole mm-hmm. team of other folks, and really just spent those few years trying to understand this field called psychoneuroimmunology which is a really fancy word for connections between psychology, uh, neuroscience, and immunology. 
And, uh, and really what I've been trying to do then is just apply this psychoneuroimmunological perspective to stress and, uh, and health. And so that's, I suppose that's uh, what I've been doing <laughs> since then. That's the story. Well, it's, I appreciate so much knowing the story because there's such a, a, a prolific, just deep um, well of publications and so much stuff that you've done and uh, and to get into that and maybe separate out how how do you get into teaching and i mean it all goes together but what what leads you in the path of the teaching and all of that stuff if you don't mind sharing uh it goes back to i think your opening uh your opening comments about early mentors i mean uh if you know if we're so humble to look back on our own lives and to understand how we got into the positions that we did, then hopefully we, we realize that other people played a great role in um, in all of it. You know, not not just um, teaching us the content that maybe we're interested in. But as I said, in the, in, in the context of describing my relationship and the impact Bill Zimbardo has had, just more fundamentally making us excited about mm -hmm. learning or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, I've just always been the type of person to want to give away what I've received. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, have, I, I owned at a very early age in my own professional career how much I owed to other people who got me to where I was. You know, and at that time at Stanford, there, Pils and Barta was active, but so was Al Bandura, you know, the father of social cognitive theory and self efficacy and yes. social modeling. Um, and uh, I think I just really um, came to feel that, you know, if if any student in their career has the opportunity to be excited by somebody else, and if that other person can show them how it's done and give them a little bit of a path, a little bit of a kickstart, then they can go pretty far. And I think that my own story is somebody who benefited from other people really um, taking an interest in me as a scholar. And as I said, not just teaching me some content, but also teaching me how to be excited and passionate about my work. And that was the greatest gift that was given to me. And I suppose I feel compelled times a hundred to, you know, pay it forward and do the same for my students. I, I normally don't say this, but I'm going to say this. I just, you have this wonderful balance. This is why I love to do this podcast is because you have this beautiful balance of academia and humanism. Like you're also a human uh, along with all that. Thank you. <laughs> so this is also us. Bandura influence, which is what he would say, you know, we're all agents of change, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. We are all agents in our own life history, but also in our work. Um, and I think, first of all, you know, taking the agent out of scholarly work is, you know, would be sort of to try to disassociate two things in a way that doesn't really make sense, right? Because uh, all scholars, poets, any, you know, philosophers, <laughs> musicians, right, our products are all uh, they're all a product of our mind. So like, what can we talk about, about the scholarly work if we're not um, giving, uh, you know, uh, uh, if, if we're not acknowledging ourselves as agents in that work, so. 
Yeah, terrific. Wow, thank you so much. I so I mean I, I just love to know that. So you're teaching and doing this, and then there's um, I love to ask this. There's so many amazing publications that you have. I I love to ask the question. Uh, uh, with such a robust library of publications, what are a few that were most meaningful and why to you? That's probably a loaded question, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're making me choose between my children. <laughs> I, I, well, you've got hundreds of children, so I know that's a tough, uh, that's a tough lot to choose. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I have a, I have a few clear favorites. I mean, you know, one paper, uh, which was early early paper in 2013 about human social genomics that I that I wrote with yes. a good friend and collaborator of mine at, at UCLA, Steve Cole. Um, you know, Steve Steve's work has really um, pioneered our understanding of how the human genome is impacted by different social experiences. And in that first paper, you know, we coined the term of this field that has since come to emerge called human social genomics. And the idea there is is sort of more simple than it sounds at first. You know, the, the idea there is that as we grow up, we come to understand our, our biological selves as being pretty stable across time and across situations. You know, we all have appreciation of DNA. We know we get sort of half our DNA from our mom and our dad, and that over the course of our lives, that DNA re remains relatively unchanged. Uh, and of course, we don't experience changes in our DNA from moment to moment because we have no way of experiencing the genome, right? We can we can feel changes in thoughts and emotions, but we can't feel changes in genomic activity. And you know, the biggest discovery in the field of human social genomics is this idea that the activity not our DNA, but our RNA levels, the expression of those genes changes on a moment to moment, hour to hour, week to week basis, not just as a function of sort of internal biological processes, but also as a function of our experience of the social world. Hmm. And for me, that is just a game changer uh, that you know explains how it is that if we're chronically stressed out for one week or two weeks, why do we get sick? Why, you know, why, why do we come down with the cold the moment after the 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 the, uh, the test is finished? <laughs> you know what I mean? We've been holding it together for two weeks. We're we're doing well, but during that time, our genome has has really reduced our antiviral uh, activity at the level of the genome. Uh, we've sort of held it together, but as soon as after we're finished with the test, all of a sudden now we're susceptible to those viruses that that we picked up probably along the way. Um, you know, likewise, how can a how can a life history of chronic stress lead to increased risk of all of these inflammation-related disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease, asthma, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease? You know, all of that really is explained by this really critical critical process of changes in human gene expression occurring as a result of a positive and negative social experience. So that paper, certainly. Um, a big and one. then just, you know, two others I'll mention quickly. We, yeah, a few years ago, wrote um, a paper, which is a, called a meta-analytic review. Some of your listeners will be aware of, you know, that's when uh, 
highly masochistic researchers like myself look at the entire um, uh, literature on a particular topic and try to analyze data across all of those studies. And what we did in that um, paper was really a meta-analysis of all the studies that had looked at connections between some kind of psychosocial intervention and mm -hmm. immune system function. Because the question is, you know, here we are as therapists, we're doing cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, uh, uh, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction. To what end? Uh, you know, do those kinds of interventions have a concrete impact on the function of the immune system? And if so, that feels like pretty concrete empirical evidence to say, yeah, we should use cognitive behavior therapy or dialectic behavior therapy or, or some kind of stress management to improve both mental and physical health because we have this demonstrated association in randomized clinical trials that individuals who are randomly assigned to get CBT versus some kind of active control actually show improvements in immune system function. And if we can show that, then, you know, hopefully we can get a little bit more traction for getting payers. Yeah, that is amazing. Yes, yes, wow. You know, I love that paper because it provides a really robust empirical demonstration that um, CBT, uh, uh, group CBT, you know, reduces inflammation, has other positive immune benefits. And, and I feel like that is something that, you know, we, we need in our arsenal of arguments for why uh, payers and insurance companies should, uh, should, should cover psychosocial intervention. So um, fantastic. And then the last one is just, you know, what my work is really congealed into, which is the social safety theory, mm. which basically says that, again, as we started out, social relationships are um, uh, are the fabric, you know, that that uh, that keep us together. Social relationships buttress our uh, our lives. Uh, they provide us direction and meaning. Uh, um, and uh, and really make us feel grounded. And so whereas uh, positive social relationships can imbue us with resilience and meaning and direction, uh, uh, negative social relationships uh, can degrade our sense of self-worth, uh, can feel as though we're not, you know, moving or progressing in our lives, can make us feel as though we're a flag waving in the wind. And although we're working really hard. There's just something that doesn't feel meaningful about our lives. And so this paper about social safety theory is to really try to understand what are the types of positive and negative social experiences that impact our mental and physical health, and also what are the neural and immunologic and genomic mechanisms that translate positive and negative social experiences into health and well-being. And then finally, if we know what those mechanisms are, how can we use uh, therapeutic tools in our toolbox like CBT, DBT, stress management interventions to uh, reduce risk for negative health outcomes, but equally importantly, to build in uh, a positive experience of ourselves and our social world to really keep us resilient um, at the individual and collective level. And so, um, yeah, that, uh, that's something that's near and dear to my heart, as, as uh you can tell.
Yeah, of course. It's so tremendous. I know you've piqued the interest of not only myself, but all, all, all of our listeners. So I, I want to make sure they gain access to that. I, I'm smiling at your last description. I'm like, oh, so Martin Seligman was on to something all those many years ago about positive psychology and all that stuff. Just so wonderful. My gosh. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, he certainly has had an incredible impact on the field. And I think, um, you know, to your point, one of the most important impacts I think he had was to remind us all as therapists and as researchers that the goal here is not just to get patients from negative 79 to zero. Right. You know, that's disease risk reduction. That's reducing psychopathology. There's also the other end of the scale, which is to get patients from zero to positive 79 or whatever yeah. it is. And I think positive psychology certainly had a huge impact on reminding us that, you know, studying and understanding character and virtue and meaning in life and life satisfaction is just as important as is reducing risk for depression and anxiety, because just eliminating symptoms doesn't mean that you're doing well. Right. Well, I, I just hear it in Barca, we use the term, uh, we use the term purpose um, to trump actually passion. So I would say, if it's fair to say for you, there's some clear purpose-driven life here for you, Dr. Slavich. I just thank you for sharing it with us. Holy cow, it's been amazing. And I, yeah. I, I suspect that that's nothing special to me. I mean, I think every, you know, therapist, you don't, you don't become a therapist because you're financially driven, right? You, <laughs> you become a therapist because you feel like you have a, a life that um, involves giving back and, um, and helping to, you know, keep other people resilient. So I think I've done that in my own way, but I think that's probably something that resonates with a lot of your listeners as well. Yeah, of course. Well, would you mind telling us about, um, your current project, I know that the, the stress lab is doing some amazing things. If you mind sharing that with us, it would be wonderful. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you'll probably post this somewhere, but all the work that we're doing is available in the life on our, you know, UCLA uh, Laboratory for Stress Assessment and Research, you know, which is at uh, uclastresslab.org. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about is that in the state of California, we've put together this statewide network of stakeholders, um, clinicians, healthcare providers, uh, scholars, um, and uh, and uh, working on now insurance companies and benefit companies um, uh, to uh, come together to the table to really address this issue of health disparities and moving toward health equity. Mm -hmm. um, and that project is the California uh, Stress Trauma and Resilience Network, uh, CalSTAR uh, Network for short also creatively at calstarnetwork.org. Um, oh, and, you know, that really, that really, I think, tries to, the goal there is to really to, to bring the science of stress and resilience to bear on our understanding of what healthcare providers and other stakeholders can do to um, reduce health disparities at a population level and to hopefully move us a little bit toward health equity. So some of the things we're not really particularly well poised to deal with the structural issues, um, you know, being a clinical psychologist or, you know, uh, well, you know, reducing the structural drivers of racism are, of, of mm -hmm. course, the most, you know, uh, social stratification 
you know, are are probably the most important things that we can, you know, we mm-hmm. could as humans spend our lives doing. You know, the purpose of the network is to focus more on the public health um, uh, issues related there, which is if we know, for example, that early life adversity or adverse childhood experiences have a huge impact on lifelong trajectories, uh, lifelong opportunity and health disparities, which we know that they do. In the state of California, for example, um, almost 20% of Californians experience four or more adverse childhood experiences. And you know, over 70% of these health disparities are linked back in one way or another to early life adversity um, in the state of California, again, almost $112 million per year, um, you know, can link, be linked, excuse me, billion dollars per year can be linked to stress-related health outcomes. You know, this is not just um, the cost of healthcare, but also, you know, lost days of productivity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the focus of the, of the uh, Stress Trauma and Resilience Network is really to bring the science of uh, stress and resilience to understand which aspects of the, the scholarly work in stress and resilience can be used to understand how we can transform healthcare. You know, if healthcare providers do not know what kinds of stressful life experiences their patients have had, then what hope do we have for a healthcare provider to take stress as a treatment target? You know, if you don't assess it, you can't address it. So if you have a patient in your room, therapy room, who's been traumatized, it's going to be quite difficult to turn those experiences into treatment targets if you don't know that they've been traumatized in one way or another. And so we've developed some tools for assessing lifetime stress exposure um, along those lines that help, you know, healthcare providers really put major life stressors on the map, on the radar of both patients and providers so that they can work collaboratively um, to really turn those, um, you know, those experiences into treatment targets to hopefully, again, not just get, not just reduce their disease risk, but, uh, you know, you know, build resilience, hope resilience and and, uh, purpose in their lives. Well, tremendous. Thank you so much for raising awareness, right? I mean, and I love to hear you say, gosh, we're the ACEs is, a, is an amazing um, assessment tool to use, even to access that trauma and how it's related to all the re- related mental health problems and physical problems. It's just is fascinating in your efforts. And that ACEs questionnaire, you know, I, I say tongue in cheek that that stressors don't stop when you're age 18. And the <laughs> ACEs questionnaire has been around for a long time, but we've really taken a life course perspective on that and and you know your listeners can can go to the lab website and and look at the tool we've developed the the stress and adversity inventory or strain which is really a, a life life an assessment of lifetime stressors across the entire life course from early age up until the date of the interview because i really do believe that you know it is the case that early life adversity is tremendously impactful but like i said uh, stress doesn't stop when you're age 18. <laughs> and in some cases, you know, they're, the, the things that our patients uh, really come into the room with are things that have happened after that. You know, uh, most, most people don't get divorced before age 18, for example. <laughs> you know, they get divorced after age 18. And so I think it's really important just for all of us as, uh, as, uh, as uh, therapists and healthcare providers to understand that life course uh, history of stress. 
Just tremendous. I, so it, it's. I think I know the answer, but I always love to conclude our time together with what legacy will you leave? Um, it's clear you have a legacy to leave, and you've got it. But I'm curious to hear a quick response. No, oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's it. I'm not sure if you think it's going to be psychology related. Um, you know what? What I think is that every. You know, all of us deserve the opportunity to live to live a life that you know marries our personal passion and our mm -hmm. occupation. Uh, you know, I don't think that I would be as successful of a psychologist if if my DNA and my temperament and my own personal experiences didn't provide me with rich information about my work life if that makes sense, you know, I think I'm good at my work life because I can rely on my personal experiences and my passion. Um, and I think, you know, the legacy that I, that I would love to live is to help as many people as possible, you know, suss out, uh, what their personal, um, uh, their personal experiences and their personal passions are. And honestly, if it's in psychology, then I can help a lot <laughs> because I can help them professionally. But if it's not, I suppose I also really want them to know that because it's, you know, there's no worse nightmare than to be stuck in a job that when you go home every day, you realize it's not for you. So, you know, I hope to teach as many students about science and psychological science and psychotherapy as possible. But I suppose I ho also hope that the others uh, fail quickly in psychology and go on into other things. Uh, and of course, pursue their passions, whatever it is, uh, in whatever area of life, you know, really um, maps on most to their, you know, their personal, um, as you said, personal purpose and, and meaning. So, uh, you know, helping as many people realize their dharma and pointing them in that direction would be something that I would love to be able to give back. Well, you've given me a gift in our time together. You certainly have given the, the readers a gift. Thank you for this really uh living and exemplifying exemplifying this integrated life, if you will. That's certainly what I, I like to call it. So just invaluable. We will certainly be able to, you know, your website and all that, we'll certainly post it on there. I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I've just, I've got a million more questions, but I'll, I'll, ref, I'll refrain um, from doing that. But uh, to our listeners, just thank you for joining us. Please access this podcast wherever how and how you access podcasts would be wonderful. And again, I want to just extend my deepest uh, gratitude for spending time with Dr. George Slavich. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Mm -hmm.